Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. Not sure why I had to say triple R in an American accent. (laughs) I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie. Hello, hello. And returning again, our first alternate, as always, Flick Forward. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Hello. It's like a cheerleading squad. It really is. <laughs> Very pleased to have you back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Now, on tonight's show, we have quite a few costume changes, so I hope you're both ready. <laughs> I'm always ready for costume <laughs> First, we put on our pantsuits as we find out whether Renee Zellweger playing Judy Garland in Rupert Gould's Judy is a good idea. Then <laughs> we throw on our Panama hats as Steven Soderbergh takes us through the Panama Papers scandal along with our pals Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas with The Laundromat. And then we slip into our PJs for our Shocktober edition retro title for this evening, Amy Holden Jones's slasher classic, The Slumber Party Massacre. But first, we have Judy. After starting with a young Judy Garland being led toward her starring career by a frankly demonic Louis B. Mayer, we pick up three decades later as Judy, now 46 and being played by Renee Zellweger, is, paying, is playing the Poverty Row circuit, doing $150 gigs with her kids Lorna and Joe Luft while fending off custody claims from their father and her ex-husband Sydney. especially as Judy has found herself broke and pretty much homeless. If she has any hope of getting her kids back, she needs to make money and fast. Thankfully, there's a long-standing offer from London to cross the pond and do a series of shows at the talk of the town. So, while dreading the prospect of leaving her kids for months on end, she takes it. But we, as we see from flashbacks from Judy's MGM excuse for a childhood, there's a lot of pain and self-control that Judy's been struggling with. And compounded with her current woes, can she manage to pull it together, revamp her career and get it together on stage? Or will her lifetime of trauma, now visible in every twitch and gesture, overwhelm her? Sally, did this put you over the rainbow or did you find it all a bit Johnny One No, <laughs> I actually enjoyed this a lot more than I thought that I would, to be honest. Um, yeah, the thought of Renee Zellweger playing Judy Garland in a biopic wasn't overly appealing to me. Really? Um, <laughs> but you know what? I thought it was pretty good. I thought she was amazing. I really, um, yeah, it, it was just, if it, if it wasn't for Renee Zellweger, this movie for me wouldn't have worked at all. She was really the glue that held it together. Um, there were some quite beautiful moments in this film that I really enjoyed, particularly one scene where Judy went and had a midnight supper with some fans. Um was I thought quite touching uh the flashback scenes that you talked about I found that maybe they weren't necessary they were perhaps a little bit too hammy but then maybe they did add some context to her struggles and you know why she um you know was struggling so badly and how it had pretty much been a lifelong thing that you know, she'd been given appetite suppressants since she was a young child and, you know, spiralling into drug addiction, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, there was – it was a nice enough viewing experience for me. It wasn't, you know, either – review. Can, they put, can nice, they put that on the poster? A nice, yeah. enough, a nice enough viewing experience. Sally Christie, Plato's case. A nice enough viewing experience. But, it, look, I, I do I, – I really do think that Renee Zellweger's performance does – 
deserves some praise. I thought that she was really, really outstanding in this. And yeah, like I said, if it wasn't for her, it would have been a bit one note, not over the rainbow. But yeah. <laughs> It was. It was more enjoyable than I had anticipated it to be, for sure. I'm actually – I think because I've just seen it, um, maybe yeah, I'm saw, still in I, the glow of um, – I think you both well, you both saw it this we, afternoon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, accidentally saw it. We're at the same, same screen. screening separately. <laughs> I, I, went, I went had no with, idea. with my mum on Saturday. It was a nice mother-daughter day out to Aww. see Judy. It was good. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> There's some lovely mother-daughter moments in yes. there as well. Yeah, there was. Very, um, yeah, um, yeah I, I definitely liked it more than it sounds like. Like you did, Sally. Um, I I really didn't like the flashbacks. I I, I feel like mm. they it felt like a different film, and I'm not sure I would have preferred either that they had developed that more or got rid of them completely. Yeah, I I feel like if they were going to give that kind of context to her background, either do it. Um, in sort of beginning there in a narrative form mm. that you'd begun with her as a child, and now she's at this point, rather than going. As a flashback, I think that would have worked better. But yeah, I, the flashbacks or, or took even away. as in dialogue, like yeah. just have yes. Judy refer yep. to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's a difficult one because she's such a, an amazing figure and it's such a fantastic, uh, um, fantastic performer. So there's so much material there to work yes. with, and her story, her life story, is amazing. So mm-hmm. of course there should be a film about her. I'm not sure. It's sort of that thing of. It's it's like they it's quite a limited focus. So I get mm. that it's a it's this huge project that's ahead of the filmmakers, but they sort of s- limit it down, which may not necessarily be a criticism. I think that sometimes it makes sense with biopics to just focus on one stage yeah. and to do it well. I'm happier seems... with biopics that do that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I feel that way too, and it seems to be kind of a current trend with mm. biopics that, that yeah. focus on one part of a particular person's life. And <laughs> well, I... after seeing Ray slash Walk the Line slash Walk Hard. Do I think Dewey Cox killed that biopic. I know. <laughs> it's like, all right, we can't do the whole life story anymore. We've yeah. got to. But you can you can always you can always anchor the story to little reference points from yes. their, yeah. their history. And it, this film doesn't necessarily do it. And when it does, it's in these kind of weird flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that that works so well. I actually kind of liked the start when it, it opens like that. And I just thought that that would be the last that we'd see of that. Or yeah. that yeah. go somewhere with it, it was really beautiful seeing like yeah. the, um, the sets of oh, Oz and things like that. Yeah. That was really nice. And it was yeah. a real beautiful nostalgia piece to mm-hmm. cinema. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked that moment. I just think that it, later on it doesn't fit. Um, Zellweger is amazing though. She's yeah, so she good. Is. And I actually thought that uh, Garland's story uh, is quite, you know, of course quite different to Zellweger, but there's a lot of intertextuality with the way in which the public responded to Zellweger and especially her change in appearance mm. and the way in she, got, she got really attacked by the press. And so... That idea of this woman at the centre of the public eye and being um, attacked for her looks and for there to be this focus from a really young age on her weight and all of this control put in, I thought that that worked so well between those two women. You you know what? I read this (laughs) article about, you know, because Renee Zellweger was in the country maybe two weeks ago promoting Judy, Mm. an article in an unnamed online Australian newspaper today, and they were talking about this, about, Mm. you know, the kind of parallels with Judy and Zellweger and her appearance and how she'd been attacked for that. And then, like, the read next story was all about why does Renee Zellweger's face look like oh Darcy? What the hell? Br- in, um, Bridget Jones 3 or whatever. Yeah. Oh, like, my, oh my God. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Placement. Yeah. And it's precisely yep. – Oh my god! So I, yeah. I, it's precisely that subtext that really spoke to me, and I thought that. I wonder if it really... spoke to her. 
Yeah, mm. yeah. And I think that, yeah, and perhaps she was drawn to the project for that reason because I think there's some, some really beautiful moments in this film that um, maybe because I didn't have enough... Um, I maybe I was a bit hungry myself, but I was kind of like, I, I was a bit emotional watching this and I, I just found I was really moved by these really tender moments within the film. It is a little bit um, overdone in parts, uh, but I think there's some really beautiful small moments uh, and that's largely owing to Zellweger. She's just amazing. Also, Jessie Buckley, um, who plays sort of mm. the woman who nannies her throughout the film, I thought she was excellent and she was in a, a film that we have reviewed before in Plato's Cave Beast, which was also about unruly women and I thought that there was a lovely sort of connection there. Very different film to Judy. But um, th- those kind of really anchored it for me. There is um, a lovely nod to... Um, queer narratives in Judy and I think that's really lovely that they acknowledge that because that's a huge part of her fandom and this sort of performativity and what her story kind of represents for a lot of people. So I I actually loved Mm. that that was an addition made to the film. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. I thought that was really smart that they've put that in there. Yeah, Yeah. and also I suppose I actually really love musicals and I think that it's wonderful just sinking into a performance like Zellweger. I mean, I love her in Chicago and mm. just she's so great on stage. I just really got into watching her and her that lovely acidic barbs but then this huge amount of charm that she pulls off as Garland. I, I was really into that that fantastic switch of character. Mm. Um, and you could kind of see why she was so captivating and what mm. how she was able to lure people in and, and also um, manipulative but also quite fragile. She was mm. a really interesting character. Just constant contrast. Yeah, I... I like this, like you said, I liked it more than I thought I would. Mm. It's it's interesting because this, speaking of films were reviewed on Plato's Cave this year, this felt like a bookend to Stan and Ollie. Oh, yeah. yeah. They almost yeah. felt like they're from the same, like it's, mm. it's like, it feels like a studio house style. It's like, yes. it's the late in life biopic where they've gone to London, Americans have gone to London yep. in one last ditch to make some cash at the end of their mm. careers and find something over there. I felt like this was a lot better and I feel like it's mainly, as you say, because of Renee Zellweger's performance. Um, she had all of those crazy ticks mm. that, that um, yeah. and that, you know, and that uh, Judy has. And, you know, like even when she's singing or when she's on stage, there's all of those kind of inflections and, you know, and some of those ticks were obviously nervous and some of them were due to drugs and some mm. of them were due to and, – and she embodies all that really beautifully. It's interesting because, like, within about ten minutes of the film, you're like, yep, yeah, that's Judy Garland. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I thought that too. It was I was so – Convinced, yeah, mm. which like, is so which, so convinced, yeah. which mm. is partly why I almost wish they hadn't. And look, this isn't a this isn't a slam on Zellweger. Zellweger's got a pretty great voice, mm. but I almost wish they just used Judy. And I... it's and it pulled me up because it's just like there is no, I mean, like there is no singer like Judy Garland, and it's such a difficult thing. I think was I think it's the I think it's the Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, and this is not the, those kind of films, but it's that kind of Bohemian Rhapsody Rocket Man question for me. It's like if you've got the extraordinary Freddie Mercury voice, you want to mix and yeah, make it yeah. Freddie. I, Whereas I really, if you've got the Elton John voice, you can kind of yeah. someone can get away. I, with it. I really struggle with that as well with bio, with biopics or anything where it's just like just use the original. Track. <laughs> yeah, I do. I I, I struggle with Particularly that too. Which is extraordinary, yep. like mm. Judy. Yeah, yeah. I thought there was enough. There was enough moments, though, that where she did sound a lot like 
Garland that mm. I was kind of okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's because of the on-screen performance as well as the voice. Though. Yes. So it's kind of, it came close enough for me. But I know what you mean. It's kind of that thing where it just makes you go want to go and actually listen to Judy yeah. rather than... Or it just slightly pulls you out on stage. Yeah. Just like, oh, Judy might have hit that. Yeah. Extra, like, but having said that, I mean, look, no, yeah, no, no, I think Zellweger's got a great voice, but it did feel like Roxy Hart yeah. was singing mm-hmm. yeah. Judy yeah. Garland yeah. songs, yeah. you know, and I was like, oh, it's, oh, oh, and there was the one time when it sort of go, oh, it's not Judy Took Garland, away. it's Roxy Hart, but, yeah. but everything else in the performance I thought was, yeah, was just kind of magnetic and, mm-hmm. and really, um, and not afraid to go into those sort of, those areas of fragility and, 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 you know, and oddness and, um, yeah, I think the rest of the film around her, uh, yeah, I like Jesse Buckley's performance, I like Rufus Sewell, I like, but it's not as strong and it's yeah. more formulaic. I, I thought some of the flashbacks with uh, with her and Mickey Rooney were quite cute. Yeah, yeah. they were. Yep. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I, I did kind of enjoy those. Um, but, yeah, but overall, um, yeah, the the, the, the central, the, the, the latter-day narrative is the one that works the best. And, yeah, I agree, Sal. Those scenes with Andy Nyman and I can't the other actor's name right now but the two gentlemen uh who are the fans of her the the uh gay fans of hers and they have a beautiful you know moment night and on Mm. and that stuff is i think some of the best stuff in the film yeah and actually that that really special and that i think was the sequence in the film that i found really really moving yeah Mm. i found myself moved towards the end of the film particularly their involvement not so much because of what the film was doing but it reminded me about stonewall because you know yeah. that Stonewall yeah. was the whole inspiration of that was because it was on the night of Judy Garland's funeral. Yeah. Mm. And that inspired them to fight. But, and that was what moved me. Yeah. Um, more so than, you know, the movie itself. So, yeah, it, that was a kind of intertextual thing as well. But, um, yeah, no, solid. Solid. I, I yeah. was surprised by this. I was surprised by it too. Good I on. went into it just going, okay. You know, here we go. Here we go. Strap on in. <laughs> and how how beautiful as well with how it's able to capture um, what that sort of fandom could mean mm. potentially. And I think that it's interesting how she's from such a young age was forced to sing these like really beautiful upbeat stories and had quite a tragic life herself. And I think that beautiful. Um, Almost, uh, you know, she's singing about just be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So painfully sad. I actually, I went to see Judy Garland's new resting place last month, very recently, um, at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. She's, I think she was just moved there last year. Her children oh, wow. wanted her in Hollywood Forever. And the the setup of where they have her is very, they've, they've got, you know, a spot for Toto. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. There's clearly a lot of celebrities buried at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, but hers is extra special where they have in front of her crypt four chairs so four people can just sit. And they also have a entire sort of, I guess, little section there where um, that is devoted to queer culture. So wow. there's all these pictures of Cher and that anyone anyone else wants to put anything in that they feel is important. And, yeah, it was pretty amazing oh, to wow. see. Yeah, mm. that there's a whole kind of, yeah, at her resting place, a sort of section for queer culture there that people can contribute to. That's fantastic. Oh, wow. So are we, do, is Judy kind of like the official first queer, queer icon? I don't know. Like, I mean, I I mean obviously I Oscar Wilde yeah. is there, you know, maybe Oscar Wilde. I don't know. But, yeah, but, but, yeah, she's, but she's, as far as modern pop culture, she's kind of the – she feels like the Sinatra of queer culture yeah. to me. 
Mm. You know that that I, that's an analogy I'm I, yeah. I feel confident with. I'm not going to go with first, but the Sinatra of queer culture. Yeah. But yeah, no, good on you, Renee. You, you nailed it. She did a good job. Mm. Very good job, Renee. <laughs> that was uh, Judy, which is now screening at all good cinemas. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. So the second film for this evening is The Laundromat. Uh, Ellen Martin, Meryl Streep, never imagined a dream vacation with her longtime husband would result not only in his death, but that of 20 others. But this is exactly what happens when an innocuous boat ride is capsized by an errant wave. Ellen wants some sort of justice, some company to sue, but the insurance company is proving elusive. But that's the same for the cruise company as well, who are facing their entire business going under during, due to their insurance firm's refusal to pay out. That's because said firm is, a, is actually a shell company, run out of a small office on a tiny Caribbean island, along with thousands of others, set up, Ellen discovers, by high-powered Panama-based law firm Mossack Finesca, the partners of whom, Jürgen Mossack, Gary Oldman, and Ramon Fonesca, Antonio Banderas, also narrate this tale, and a handful of others that also link to their shady dealings. This, of course, leads to the Panama Papers scandal, a whistleblowing event that resulted in shockwaves affecting thousands of million and billionaires around the globe, told here as a sort of anthology piece with the deceitful lawyers as its Greek chorus. Flick. Uh, were, uh, were you washed? <laughs> I don't have an intro. Were, were, were you washed? Did you, was this particular laundromat have you on spin cycle or rinse? Whatever the hell either of those things mean. Um, oh, I don't even know how to respond. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to go with the tax reference. And really? I was about to say, I haven't done my taxes yet. So <laughs> I got very stressed watching this film. I like, better get on to that. Um, look, I, uh, yeah, this is an interesting, I feel like the laundromat fits in with this, like, uh, I suppose you could call it a genre of um, films that try to make economics sexy and entertaining, much like uh, Big Short and The Wolf of Wall Street. Um I really dislike this film. <laughs> I, I was, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I was sort of um, trying to find something positive to say about it. I mean, there are, okay, the performances are very strong mm. and there are moments that I thought were quite clever and some quite funny. Um, but on the whole, I just feel like it's a mess. I, I feel like all of the, you've got these amazing actors, you've put them all in the same film and it's so unclear what the emotional tra- trajectory is meant to be. Um, and it's kind of like they forget about Meryl Streep's character and then suddenly drag her back in and it's so messy and then they introduce you to a whole new set of other characters and you're kind of following their story for a bit. It's like Soderbergh has just sort of forgotten, like it's just like feels like a last minute assignment that he's sort of done up and uh, yeah, I just was not a fan. I, I think that the it's shame because I feel like the concept of, um, so it's based on real life events and the story itself is strong, like it's a fascinating and very relevant story and I wish in a lot of ways that cinema would engage more with these questions of um, wealth discrepancy and offshore taxation, you know, tax schemes that do um, privilege this 1% and and rip off the rest of us. So I'm kind of, I'm very passionate about those kind of issues. It's just disappointing that this film just does such a hodgepodge job of it. And Soderbergh's a good director, like uh, Aaron Brockovich, Out of Sight. I mean, these are uh, these are amazing films. Um, 
you know, he does really well with the Ocean series. There's there's so many things that could have worked well with this, but it, I feel like it's a big failure. Yeah, I um, I went into this film really not knowing anything at all about it, and I think, I mean, with things on streaming services, they can get lost. There was a couple of films that we talked about last year. I think it was called Bloody Sunday, the um, Italian film that was excellent, and I would have completely not it wouldn't have appeared in my algorithms if I hadn't been sort of said you know told to watch it and things kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit and um yeah I had I, all I knew that this was a Steven Soderbergh film um so I found it on Netflix watched it um the cast like you said flick is great we've got Antonio Banderas, Gary Oldman um lots of huge huge names in this so it came out looking really promising in the first 10 minutes but then I've got my notes here for this film and I've got the laundromat and I've got one dot point and it just says meh I thought we were going to do like the spinal tap thing. It's just got one. It's a, it's a two word review. Shit sandwich. It's just a one word review. But um, yeah, I really my my thoughts on this echo yours a lot, Flick. That um, it felt like a hot mess. This mm. film and. It's almost embarrassingly it, so. It shouldn't have. Yeah. It shouldn't have. Yeah, within the first 10 minutes I was like, okay, this is going to be quite – like I'm in, I'm in for something quite enjoyable. And it felt kind of fun at the start. I was it like, the please first, make this entertaining to me. The first 20 minutes or so were quite fun. There was one it, – it does kind of like Paul was saying branch off into almost an anthology kind of thing where, you know, we've got different stories. There was one story in particular that I really, really enjoyed, which was um, one of the – guys that has a company about him and his daughter and his daughter's best friend. Mm. I really enjoyed that story. If there was a whole movie based around that, I think I would have loved it. <laughs> yeah, he just had to pick one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just pick one story. And, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the ending in particular, I disliked a lot. Mm. Obviously, I'm not going to give away any spoilers. But, yeah, the way this film wrapped up, I really disliked. Um yeah, we've got lots of really amazing things coming to streaming services this month. I think have we got the new Scorsese? Uh, next month. Next month. Next month. So yeah. There's lots of really kind of big names, and mm-hmm. it is easy for them to slip under the radar. And this one totally would have slipped under my radar if it hadn't been pointed out to me. But yeah, I I, I did not. I, I I was not a fan. I I just I felt like it. I lost interest. It was not engaging. It just it, it really didn't do a whole lot for me. The laundromat. Yeah, I sort of – that's – I guess what you, you folks are saying has been a pretty much the most of the reviews. And you're, you're a big – you're a Soderbergh I, fan. I am yeah. a big Soderbergh fan. Because we did flying high, high Flying Bird yes. earlier this year and you, you really liked it. I really it. dug that. It. I yeah. did. I'm probably not going to come right out and champion this. I've, I found it – I did find it engaging from beginning to end, but it is mm-hmm. – it's interesting. It had me thinking that this messiness, it can't be an accident. Like, you've got, like, it's got to be something. And, and I, the, the thing I put it down to is I think Soderbergh is always, you know, he, he's, very, he's a very clever filmmaker and he's always got something kind of going on that he wants to, or, or some style he wants to explore. And I feel like this is a bit of a jazz record. For yeah, him, yeah. Yeah, it's very free form, and it's very now we're going over here. Now, I kind of, I guess, I wish there was some sort of flag up front that this was going to be an anthology. I feel like if there was that, if we knew that up front, then I think the audience would take it a lot easier. I think the fact that it suddenly just becomes an anthology film, like we think it's a film about Meryl Streep digging to find out 
what's behind all this and discovers the pen. You know, we think it's the trail that leads Meryl Streep to Oldman and, and Banderas. But then all of a sudden we're over here. Like, like I, I like that story with the African family too. Um, but when they cut to them, I was literally like, who the hell? Yeah, why yeah. is this going happening? On? It was yeah. very disjointed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why, why are we here? Who is this? What? what? Uh-huh. Mm. Um, and that, and you know, then we go to the other story, uh, which was kind of interesting, if a bit sort of high, a bit high drama, I guess, with Matthias Schoenarts uh-huh. and mm. uh, and the um, and the and uh, Rosalind Chow. Um, oh, that scene is amazing. That was probably my favourite scene. That's the thing. I yeah. like that story. Like, I yeah. think I think they're all good and entertaining stories, but it's just kind of like this, the the film is constantly switching on you, and you don't. Um, a little bit like, I guess, it's like you're Meryl Streep. And it's like all of a sudden your world has changed. You don't know what the hell's going on. And yeah. somebody's at the centre of it. And it's these guys and they keep talking all the time. But it yeah. was interesting the way that he had done that, whereas it wasn't a consistent from the start. That didn't start happening till kind of exactly almost midway. Yeah, I honestly film. feel like it was and an afterthought. Like, what? Was, what? It's, I feel mm. like he changed his mind halfway it's through ver- filming. <laughs> it's very strange. Like that's the thing. It's like how is this? Like I mean it had to be in the script. Like halfway yeah. through the script, now we're over here. Mm. And it's like, I don't know whether he's actually going for that effect. Like, you, you know, you're like these people. It's like all of a sudden everything's different. But it's, yeah, it's an odd decision. And I don't think the film really quite, and, you know, and, and, and I was talking to my partner about this. And there's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of history in terms of theatre, in terms of having your Greek chorus and having mm-hmm. little stories branch off mm. one or another and going this sort of novelistic structure. I guess it just could have been a lot more elegantly handled. Yep. I think it's yeah. a bit ham-fisted the way it's done. It just kind of jerks you in these directions. So while I, you know, I, I can look at this as yes, yeah, as sort of Soderbergh's jazz record and all this sort of thing, I feel like it isn't quite successful in in doing that. And I think it has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because I think it's very yeah, I think it's very clunky and inelegant in the way mm. it does those things. Um, having said that, I I found Oldman and Banderas to be a lot of fun. I think. It's yeah, I, I like you, Flick. I think this is this is a sort of subject and film that is conceptually necessary. I think mm. you know these are important things to discuss. I've got to admit, unlike something like The Big Short, which actually really was really cogent mm. in explaining things to you, I didn't have a lot more of an idea about how. Mossack Finesca and Shell companies are running yeah. their business at, See, the, at the end than I did at the start. I've seen that there is a lot of comparison with this film and The Big Short. Mm. I actually have not seen The Big Short. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I can't do that comparison. But I felt like I didn't come away with a whole lot of knowledge from this film of how yeah, these no. things are put together. Yeah. So I don't know. Have you both seen The Big Short? Yeah. Yes. I, D- does, does that kind of structure things a little better, you know, a bit, yes. bit more? Okay. Yeah, and yeah. it has a lot of... Um, <laughs> Quite the the reason why the comparison is made is there's a lot of direct address to the camera yep. where they explain, um, explain financial things. concepts yeah. to yeah. sure. And also the Wolf of Wall Street does that, and uh, so it's kind of like a I suppose there's a bit more of like a growing trend around that. A film that actually I thought deals with um, economics and uh, that sort of I suppose the aftermath of a trauma like that is 99 Homes. I don't know. If you oh, saw that. that's a terrific yeah. film. I really and dig that film. So yeah, me too. Yeah. And it didn't get much buzz at the time and I was like I thought that was one of the strongest films from that year it's such a simple film but it communicates something that's happening on like a global level in just a very simple story Mm. so it narrows it down to this one home Mm. (laughs) but it it speaks for for so many other you know people so I I think that was beautifully captured because you understood what was happening on like 
on an economic uh, level. Cool. Yep. Yeah, but also just the, having this sort of stand-in of like this is someone, this is the person who is affecting the impact yep. of that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that was a, it's such a simple film, but so perfectly executed. So yeah. the exact opposite. Yes, of yeah. This is no near. <laughs> this is not. This is not nearly as cogent as those films. Yeah. And the other thing is to some, as I saw somebody point out, the irony of this being released by Netflix or a company yeah. notorious <laughs> for tax evasion. Yes. Yeah. So don't sue me. I'm just uh, quoting uh, news articles. <laughs> alleged, was there, was alleged tax evasion. Was there evasion. some issue with this film being released? I don't know. Well, no, I should have looked into that further. I don't know. As far as I know, it was picked up at Venice. It's it will premiere at Venice on the September the September first, and went straight. Maybe to I just Netflix. made that up. Yeah, don't know. Look into that. But uh, yeah, uh, follow that. But yeah, I I felt this, I I think this promised more. I mean, it's from the writer of The Informant, which is one of um, a terrific Mm, Soderbergh film from a few years back. And I I kind of think wanted more of the tone of something like that. Yeah, he's such a fun director as well. I think there's the capacity there. Yeah. Oh, 100%. But yeah. this is just, you know, they, they, they can't all be winners, particularly when you <laughs> pump out two or three years. I know, right? That's what I thought when you were, when Paul, you said that it's another Steven Soderbergh film. I was like, already? <laughs> Should we just have one? <laughs> was that Unsane, that mobile phone one? Oh, that was, did we, was that was this that year as well? last year. Last oh, year. okay. Yeah. No, that's too many. Settle down, yeah. Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> just calm down. Yeah. <laughs> have a coconut smile. Yeah. Yep. Um, the Laundromat is now streaming on Netflix. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now for our final film this evening, um, <laughs> something I, we probably should have been doing all month, but um, I, I decided for our retro pick for this evening, I'd put the spotlight on a horror movie, given that it's October and it's the month of creepy, crawly, scary things and altogether ooky. So (laughs) I've decided to choose a a slasher, an 80s slasher film that I think is woefully underseen, and that is The Slumber Party Massacre. When the cat's away, the the mice will play, and Trish decides to take advantage of her parents' absence to throw a slumber party, inviting her fellow college um, high school senior friends, Kim, Jackie and Diane. She also invites new girl uh, Valerie, but Diane has some problems with Valerie and Valerie feels that and decides not to go. Um, meanwhile, the, uh, the neighbor, uh, the parents have put their slightly creepy neighbor, Mr. Contant in, in charge of making, uh, making sure Trish is okay and checking in on the girls. Um, so the slumber party begins in earnest as Valerie, who lives across the street, has to, uh, is babysitting her younger sister. Little does everyone know that a notorious local serial killer, Russ Thorne, has escaped from prison and him and his rather <laughs> large drill are going around town slaughtering young people, boys and girls alike. As the party begins, the girls smoke marijuana, drink alcohol. Two boys, Jeff and Neil, arrive for some hijinks, but little (laughs) do they know that all of them will not survive the night. Sally. Again, I don't. I, I don't have a zinger. It's very unprofessional of me. Well, next time you have to have two zingers for each film. I do. I do. I got to make up for this. <laughs> um, slumber part. The slumber party massacre. I am a huge fan of this film. I adore it for many, many reasons. Um, so it was yeah, eighty two, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. 
Shot. It was actually the the timestamp on the end of the movie is eighty one. So okay, it released yeah. in eighty two. So it released in eighty two. Yeah. Um, this was. It's. I think important to note when we're talking about the Slumber Party Massacre that it plays on all of these tropes that we, um, you know, attribute to slasher films. Like you know, we see someone topless within the first thirty seconds of the film. Um, all this kind of stuff comes along with it. But it is important to note that it is directed by a female, Amy Jones, and it is written by a feminist author and activist, Rita Mae Brown. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, mm-hmm. it was initially written as a parody, wasn't it? That's right. It was yeah. written as a parody called Sleepless Nights. Yes. Yeah. So it was initially written as a parody film and then I think that they decided because we were in the height of slashes at that point that they would just release it as a stock standard slasher film. But it I've, is so... I've, so funny. I think I was just about to say, I think executive producer Roger Corman had something to do with yes. that. I think he wanted a straight yes. slasher in theatres, which please read a Mae Brown none. Yeah. Mm. But um, I really, I, I enjoy this film so much. I enjoy all the um, shitty shots in, you know, when the girls are having a shower and it lingers on their bums too long and things like yeah. that and um, their longing looks at each other while they're showering. I, I, the, the first line when, <gasps> when they walk in the shower, it's like, have your, have your tits gotten bigger? Oh, I love like, that. Love it. it. I'm just, I just, I live for this movie. But then, like, we do see these kind of, you know, if we look at there was a, you know, a film uh, commentator, Carol Clover, who wrote a book called Men, Women, Chainsaws, that talks a lot about the male gaze and particularly with slasher films. And I think this kind of really inverts a lot of what she's talking about, particularly with one character called Valerie who plays the neighbour that's living across the road. Um, We see her staying at home and not going to this party and she's looking at a Playgirl magazine with Sylvester Stallone on the front, which I love. (laughs) And she's staying at home to watch horror movies, which, you know, at at this this point in time, perhaps not so much now, um, but particularly in the 80s, was considered something that teenage boys did, Mm. not teenage girls to stay home and watch horror movies. So I, I really enjoy that about how it does kind of play with gender roles a little bit like that even though we do have these kind of pervy boys we're not the audience isn't positioned to feel you know to want to be on the side of those boys they're going we're positioned to feel like they're being jerks for kind yeah. of perving on these females um there's lots of interesting stuff about slumber party massacre especially i think that the um the killer we see his face straight away. Yeah. Which is... Uh, yeah, that is true. I don't know. It's what do you think, rare. Paul? Do you feel that that kind of adds or takes away? I find him really creepy. Yeah. There's something about somebody who just stands outside and stares at you mm-hmm. and doesn't blink that freaks me out. Yeah, because this is a Don't another... do it to me in the street, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, and uh, there's something... Because, yeah, at first he's like, I'm not sure about this. But then it's like, no, there's something... Because there's something impassive about him, too. Because, yeah, it's... When I guess we have our first kill in the film, we don't see him. Mm. And then very soon his face is revealed. And that, that takes you back a bit because we're used to at this point in time having Michael Myers and Jason and all these killers that are hidden by masks. But then this guy's right out in the open. Yeah. Mm. Just standing there with his massive yep. drill, which yep. again is a his comment. Huge, <laughs> his huge, huge phallic drill. <laughs> like it's so, and I think, you know, like I, I feel like a lot of you know, a lot of slashes um, do the whole um, straddle the line between satire and and yeah. and, and scares. 
I think this film does it better than most. And, and maybe it is because of its roots in a, being a parody script. I'm glad it wasn't a parody because there were a lot of terrible parodies being made at this mm. time of the slasher genre. And then films, f- completely forgettable films like Wacko and Student Bodies and his terrible Student movies. Bodies. Saturday, the, <laughs> Saturday the 14th and these terrible films. And it's Great like, names, I'm glad that this came along to kind of go, I'm, I'm always happy Corman steered them in this, like, no, let's do a straight one because I think they got enough satire in there oh, that, to make it almost a parody at the times. The scene with um, when they're hungry and they eat that pizza. That's so oh good. Oh, my God. <laughs> fantastic. It makes me – I feel better right away. I really yeah, do. Yeah, fantastic. Um, the, um, the, the girl in the fridge yes. is oh, fed such a such a – There's a, so much to love about this film. And, the, and, you know, like – and the fact that it is, you know, the first major slasher – written and directed by women. And, and in fact, there were two sequels to this and they were written and directed by women as well. It's the only horror franchise, or at least the first horror franchise in history, who's all all their chapters. I haven't actually seen any of the sequels. Neither have I. Yeah. I, I, I hear, I'm told number two is even better. Oh, really? But, uh, yeah. Okay. Like, I find I that hard to imagine because I love this mm. film. And the cool, I mean, you know, and it's so, but but I think the, the thing this film really nails um and I think it really benefits from the female perspective, is the same thing that, um, I don't know, I mean, you're probably across this cell, but um, Deborah Hill uh, wrote certain scenes in Halloween and direct, oh, sorry, uh, directed certain scenes in Halloween, mm-hmm. and it was all the scenes of the girls. Like whenever Laurie and her friends were just hanging out, um, Deborah Hill directed those scenes. Mm-hmm. And it was to get this sort of sense of easy female camaraderie, and I think this film really nails it. The first time I saw this, um, it was that sort of same thing. It's like... I really want to hang out with these girls. They're cool. Yeah. There's an yeah, one thing that I think this film captures really well that um a lot of films of particularly horror films of this era is that females, especially young females, are presented as very annoying. Yes. Um and they're not in this film. They're all quite likable. Yeah. You, you do. You want to go and hang out with them. Yeah, they're yeah. just sitting around talking shit. Yep, exactly. And it's really Reading cool. Reading Playgirl, watching horror movies. And that's, that's my people. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the sister steals it and takes it upstairs yeah. and does illicit things. With it. But, yeah. but, and then, but then there's the whole thing too. Like even the pervy boys aren't so bad. Like they're kind of nice as well and they all kind of yep. get along and, well, you know, after they – you know, after they're caught and one of them's whacked <laughs> in the face. You know, it's just, it's, and 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 one of the, I, yeah, I just feel like it, it, it is, it has that sort of peak 80s style, peak 80s slasher kind of thing going on, but with these extra dimensions and with this extra, and yeah, and the whole, the, the, the drill murder, getting there three years before um, Brian De Palma's blood, um, uh, body double. Yes. Um, yes. And the greatest thing of all, this film is 76 minutes long. I, I know. That. Actually, I was really sad that I missed it because I had exactly 78 minutes. And I was oh. like, perfect, I can fit this in. And then something got moved back. So I couldn't make this film screening. But I, I was wondering when you were talking before mm. about all of this subtext to it, do you think that that's owing to Rita Mae Brown's influence? Yes. Uh, yeah, I would yeah, say that's where yeah. Rita Mae Brown and Amy Holden Jones yeah. as well. Yeah. I, I really think that hugely if this film had had a male um screenwriter or director i think it would be a very different film 100 um even though it does 
if you just looked at it kind of on the surface, it is a kind of stock standard slasher film. Mm. But, yeah, there's there's a whole lot going on in this movie that mm. is definitely owed to them for sure. And there's this, and, and obviously like we've all read about Corman and his method of films and, you know, he, he had certain demands and it was like in every film there needs to be boobs, blood. And it's like it's almost like they get it out of the way early. Yes. And they take the piss while they're doing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So it's like... Up in the first ten minutes, here's all your nudity. Here's all, there's barely any nudity for the yeah. rest of the film. That's yeah, so you're wonderful. Right. That actually sounds like almost an inverse of the Hayes Code. You yeah. know, where they're yeah. like, how do we get around this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This way, it's like, God, how, how, do we, how do we get all yeah. this yeah, tits and t- blood in yeah. this film? Which is, God, yeah. we just have a shower scene in the first five minutes. Where we just blast you with it, and then that. Now we got that out of the way. Now we're going to just hang out with these guys. Because even the first ten minutes of the film. So I was watching this film with my partner, and um, he hadn't seen it before. That first 10 minutes, you know, with the, I think she's getting changed within the first 30 seconds in her bedroom, our, yeah. our main character. Then there's a big kind of almost Carrie-esque sh- shower scene. And um, he said to me, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. I was like, it is, isn't it? <laughs> and it's almost like they're saying that. It's yeah, almost of like, look, this Especially is Especially like you said before, that line where we get introduced from going from a bedroom to a shower scene where she goes, geez, I think my tits have gotten bigger. Like it is. <laughs> like they're going, okay, well, there's this thing that we've got to put in and then we've got to talk about this and we've got to have a shower scene and then maybe we can kind of get to the guts of the film. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and as a slasher, it's a lot of there's, – there's some really great kills. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. It's – it's as it's as uh, I think it's as competent and and well directed as any slasher of mm-hmm. that period going yep. around. Mm-hmm. Certainly, tons better than Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would agree. But yeah, we see there's definitely echoes of Carrie and yes. you know lots owed to Halloween here, but done in a really I think nice homage to them both. I agree. Mm. Get out and catch it. Uh, Slumber Party Massacre, if you want to watch it, this Shocktober is now streaming on Amazon Prime. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed Judy, now screening at All Good Cinemas, The Laundromat, now streaming on Netflix, and The Slumber Party Massacre, now streaming on Amazon Prime. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, our intrepid cavers will explore a little uh, a, a little horror comedy called Ready or Not. Uh, we'll also uh, go back in time with Eddie Murphy to explore the career of Rudy Ray Moore with Dolomite Is My Name. And we'll check out a retro title, which will be a bit of a surprise. We're going to make sure, I think we should make sure that it's another Spooktober title. <laughs> I think we should. Sure, we have to do you it. You look so happy right I now, am. Sally. <laughs> We well, have to do it. I don't, I don't care who picks it, but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> Just a horror film. Yeah. A huge thank you to uh, Faith Everard for uh, editing the Plato's Cave podcast, Kyle Chapman for panelling the show, and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website.